Well, welcome to Real Indigenous, where we discuss everything on our screens and everything in between. I'm Sunrise Divikani, and tonight we have a special guest. Joining us is Lowdown Entertainment's Matt Bars. Matt, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, hello, I'm, I'm Matt Bars, member of the Wichita tribe. Let's see, what do I do? What do I do? Um, I've been writing and directing short films and documentaries for about the last 10 years. Um, let's see, a documentary work. It's, it's, it's uh, indigenous-based. Um, I did a feature on um, Native artists like Gerald Cornoyer, Shane Gosshorn, Brent Greenwood, Thomas Poulon, Holly Wilson. I've done some shorts on them as as well. Um, and I've done narrative fiction shorts. Um, I started out doing uh, dramas, and then that's lately that's been kind of shifting toward more genre genre work, kind of blending horror with relationship issues. Um, we just finished uh, our latest short, Distance, um, that's on the festival circuit right now. Um, it deals with the pandemic. I'm, I'm sorry, a pandemic, not the pandemic. Um, and just kind of how people deal with the phenomenon that arises because of it. Um, and basically, I like discussing movies, uh, especially horror, but, you know, movies in general. But that's kind of my thing is horror movies. So, yeah. And, and where can people find you on social? Oh, um, on Instagram, it's uh, Lowdown ENT. Um, Twitter's the same, Lowdown ENT. And then Facebook, um, Matt Bars. Well, you sound like the perfect person to like be able to talk about this Masters of Horror episode. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And we are joined by our other hosts. Go ahead. Pagalevsi Uvanga Angela. It's Jade Noeta Harjo. Yeah, so tonight's discussion will be on an episode of a 2005 series, Masters of Horror series, that was on Showtime. And the particular episode we're looking at of this anthology series is called Dear Woman, which was written by Max Landis and directed by John Landis. So let's uh, hear a little bit of the synopsis and maybe some background from Matt. Okay, <clears throat> the synopsis for Dear Woman. A harried, burned-out cop believes that a recent string of murders prove that the murderer might be a deer-like creature in the form of a beautiful woman right from a local Native American folklore legend. Um, that's a let's see, season one, episode seven of Masters of Horror. It's basically um, filmmaker Mick Garris. He's done a lot of Stephen King adaptations. He did the original The Stand from like '94, I think, <clears throat> and Sleepwalkers. He organized a dinner for a bunch of his horror contemporaries, uh, people like John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Dario Argento. See, it kind of goes on and on. Joe Dante, Stuart Gordon, uh, Don Coscarelli, and John Landis. Um, they wanted to work on a project together, so they pitched this idea of an anthology. Uh, each director would kind of create their own kind of short film, but in keeping with their individual style. And uh, yeah, it was pitched to Showtime, kind of like a Tales from the Crypts. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but selling their name with it. Um, they produced two seasons and 13 episodes each. Yeah, it's sort of like, it sounds like it's a pitch like amazing stories a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Because that also had like famous names attached to each episode, which I, I, I'm discovering Mick was a story editor on. On Amazing Stories. On Amazing Stories. The, oh. the series from 85 to 87 had like Spielberg, I think. And 
I, I, I don't know if Landis was part of that, but maybe. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm not sure. Um, so is John Landis known for horror? Yeah, is he a master of horror? I mean, his big one was uh, American Werewolf in London, but I mean, he he did what uh, Innocent Blood that came out in '92. Uh, he did one I haven't seen with um, why am I drawing a blank? Diamond Peg. Yeah, yeah. Um, Burke and Burke and something. I I just read about it the other day, um, but that came out like ten years ago. But yeah, primarily uh, up until that point, he had done two horror movies: um, American Werewolf right. and, and Innocent Blood. I guess you could also, you know, consider Thriller part of his horror. Oh, yeah, sure, work, sure. Right, the music video. Yeah, yeah. The famous music video for Michael Jackson. Um, yeah, and that other film was called Burke and Hare. Burke and Hare. From 2010. Never seen that film. No. 19th century grave robberies in Edinburgh. Oh. Yeah. So, so what did people think? Well, I have a real quick question, kind of more background on John Landis. He is the director that was directing the Twilight Zone movie when those people, uh, three of the cast members were killed. Did that happen before Masters of Horror or after Masters of Horror? That was before. That was like right after American Werewolf came out, um, like in 80, 82, 83, when the accident happened. Um, so yeah, that kind of almost unfortunately kind of defined his career going for forward. Um, he kind of has a history of being, um, let's see, irresponsible. <laughs> um, there's a, a series on Shudder called, um, Cursed and it details, uh, movie sets that have had unfortunate accidents. And they talk about this, but they also talk about I think in interviews leading up to it, they talk about he has a real a penchant for showing car crashes. That's kind of what his signature style. And I think someone made a comment that he was kind of in staging these car crashes. He's really irresponsible as far as like safety. Um, and these are firsthand accounts from from the series that I'm that I'm recalling. Um, so that kind of gave, gives me an idea of just how. And I think they they describe him as just kind of be like oh just whatever just just do it we'll, we'll just we'll shoot it and you know who cares what happens and that kind of sounds like what happened on the set of Twilight Zone. Yeah, he 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 definitely goes out of his way to make extreme circumstances a very dangerous um, choreography with vehicles. So like the Blues Brothers is always this like example of like the conclusion of the Blues Brothers are just all of these cop cars kind of clashing into each other very dangerous stunts and at that time like 1980 they're you know pretty practical it's not like a lot of digital effects or even if there are special effects there's still like real people that are involved um and then in that particular film just excessive budget and that's you know always stated as an example of like bloated filmmaking um so th that is definitely a circumstance where he's like very reckless on that film and it's well documented in interviews about that time period but he's also known prior to that maybe because of blues brothers and national lampoon's animal house which is sort of like what makes him mm. um An animal house had this um element of realism it wasn't just like a frat house fraternity which i mean that film is 
pretty much like the starting point that people agree is like the begin of gross out comedy and the sort of like sex comedies that come in the 90s, like, you know, American Pie. But it wasn't just about jokes. It was also like this this attempt at realism that seemed to like maybe mimic like French New Wave or like European cinema, this thing that's like going on with American um, New Hollywood cinema. So I think his interest in like things being real mm-hmm. and then his interest in like extreme um, spectacle of violence puts him in a position where he's like going to push people to the limits on set. And that definitely comes to a head on the Twilight Zone movie. And he he's one of several directors in that film, 1982, I guess, when they're shooting it. Mm-hmm. It's um, himself, Joe Dante, George Miller, and Spielberg. And um, John Landis was pretty much the writer for his sections. And um, I think all of those directors, they kind of took previously existing material and then um, update it basically. And uh, Landis's segment, um, which uh, is called Time Out, it um, it attempted to take this element of realism to a direction that was about racism. Like he basically puts this racist through a series of like circumstances where they have to confront being put in a position of the other. You know, they're thrown through time and he becomes, you know, this individual that's uh, at the beginning of the episode, like it just in the regular time period at the bar. He's like this racist spouting these problematic statements about people of color and, um, and, and these Jewish people that he's hating because they kind of took his job. And so they transplant him into a scenario of like World War Two and having to run from the Nazis. And it implies that he's learning a lesson because he's put into the shoes of the people that he has prejudice against. Um, And so the fact that he's kind of being placed in these other time periods puts John, John Landis in a position where he's thinking, it seems like that I've got to push these things to another limit that we actually take people to these time places. And one of these locations that this racist characters plummeted into is the jungles of Vietnam. And so he is in this scenario where he's basically in the story supposed to be saving these children from oncoming American conflict. And that's represented through this helicopter. And, you know, again, because it's like this person who's pushing the limits, he's, he's wanting the scenario to be with a real helicopter at very real distances. Um, I think there's a, a real, large question about the fact that they have to practically shoot it also at night that puts this scenario in even increased danger yeah yeah so like working at night and we're working at night with real children two children and um and the actor is having to run through water with these two children at night and then there's you know quote-unquote controlled demolition of like explosions as if there's bombings Mm-hmm. So there's like debris that's being thrown at them in addition to this helicopter that has to like swoop down and, and, and swoop down in a manner that is dramatic and inches away from people and at night, Yeah, you know, so all of those end in tragedy as the, the lead actor of that segment 
and those two children. So the lead actor, Vic Morrow, and the two children um, die as a result of that stunt circumstance of this helicopter. Um, and, you know, like that's the result of this individual who had a, a support system of this studio allowing him to just do whatever he wanted. And I think it's on record people on the production that bring up the the concerns um, but then i think it's like the producers perhaps it's probably also landis um that are pushing against the questions about the safety and the protocol so those things do uh not leave him <laughs> in his career yeah. you know so like yeah that's 1983 right and um and i don't think when you watch that film I don't think that there's um I don't think that it's worth people's lives <laughs> oh man no uh, that particular episode yeah mm. like it's not I mean you come out of that watching it and you're like that was okay like any anthology series <laughs> um and his is definitely not the best <laughs> it, and it's also just you know Spielberg's probably a uh, Spielberg low in his career. Oh. Personally, I think it's not one of his best. Um, and uh, George Miller, I think, had not yet come out with uh, Road Warrior yet. And he, I think he's got the best segment of like the, is it 90,000 feet? or th No, it can't be 90,000 feet. It's like um, 20,000 feet. Nightmare at 20,000 feet, which is like a remake of the, of the episode with with the William Shatner looking oh, out the yeah. window at a gremlin. That's my yeah. 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 That's a great sequence. Um, and, but then, you know, the John, the Joe Dante recreation of the child that has these adults um, conform to his wishes and wills. I think that's probably the best one, but Landis's episode is just overshadowed by this tragedy. I don't know how they can escape it. And then at the end, it's just like, it's just, difficult to accept in the episode that matt's talking about this cursed films episode that goes into it they like really show you the footage oh and that oh, is wow. also really difficult to watch i think it's important to watch to understand like what's at stake and to recognize that the footage that you're looking at in the twilight zone movie is not just like a movie it's you know real horror <clears throat> in a different way well and he i mean so this was this episode of masters of horror was in 2005 and i think we can all agree that there are very few action sequence right yeah scale there, there are definitely no action sequences <laughs> of that scale yeah. there's barely one action sequence yeah in that whole episode of yeah yeah so i guess we could we should talk about what we think about the episode itself Dear Woman, the seventh episode in the series. Before we before we start on that, can can we go around and like say what we've heard about Dear Woman from oh, yeah. from like our own cultures and everything? Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So from my culture, I mean, I I grew up hearing about Dear Woman, but I always heard that she was only after men, and it wasn't necessarily bad men and necessarily good men, but it was just men in general. Yeah, I I hear the same thing. And I, I guess I always hear it in the context of like being at a powwow 
people talk about this story you know it's like getting dark and like the dances are happening and like kids are starting to wander away from the dance arena and they're like playing you know like this is assuming it's like an exterior dance and they're moving away into the darkness and then the story comes up like be careful like the dear woman I, it's interesting to me that it would come up when in relation to like this concern for children but i feel like when people told the story it was always about men it wasn't about like kids um but it was about dear woman enticing men and uh, there are stories that i would hear about people dancing with a woman and there's attraction there's a spark there's an interest mysterious nobody knows who she is and um and then at the end of the night, as like people start to disperse and somebody recognizes that they're, they like, they look down and they see the feet and then people get scared and, and somebody goes missing. I feel like those are kind of like versions of moments I hear in relation to a dear woman's story. Well, I grew up acculturated, so, or assimilated. So I had never heard of this until I was an adult. But Yeah, when did I that happen? Oh, what was, what were we talking about? I think it was at a beading group. We were, where I go learn how to bead. And we were talking about all of the, it was around this time of year and everybody was telling their stories. And somebody was talking about dear woman and saying that in their, I couldn't remember which tribe they are, but they go at, but she goes after the bad men, the men that have abused women or are just in general, not nice people, which is what we see in reservation dogs. Which, Noetta, you're Miss, wait, you're Osage? Osage, Muskogee. I guess it just kind of depends on who's telling the story, really. But yeah, you know, it was from my Muskogee relatives that I've heard about Dear Woman. Um, I remember there was like, I don't, it was always somebody's uncle had a story about um, driving down a dirt, dark dirt road. There was nobody else on the road. They smell something dead and stopped to look at the back of the truck to see what was you know what was going on because they thought it was coming from the back of the truck and and then a deer would run off and turn around and look and have the face of a woman that's one story i heard uh other stories i heard where uh men would be at uh, 49 and <laughs> which for our listeners is the after party of a power yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they would um you know, everybody be drinking and dancing and, and singing and you know there's a lot of people there and uh and then somebody would go missing and they would find deer tracks the next morning you know in in, in the ground and so it, it was just different stories like that you know that i heard growing up matt did you encounter your woman prior to this episode uh not not so much um i didn't really hear about deer woman until like the last the last 10 years um my uncle always talked and this this is not really um he, he talked from the kiowa side talked about saying day um the trickster that's uh, kind of the 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 lore that that i heard about but it seems along the same lines kind of the same lines as the deer woman yeah i do think that there are some ways that people talk about deer woman in relation to trickster it feels like there's a definitely trickster elements about the dear woman is she there to help is she not the fact that she's after men that are perhaps like problematic in the way that they handle relationships it seems like she's helping but then it also the the way in which she's like deceptive or or the way in which she's sly or sneaky seems like that's maybe 
a thing that we would not associate with. <laughs> so, I mean, does law she enforcement talk? or something? Does yeah. she talk in your stories? Does she speak? I mean, she's got hooves for feet. Is she able to speak? That's an interesting question. When I, the very few times where I've actually heard stories, I was so young. I don't, I don't really recall any moments of somebody telling stories about talking or even avoiding that nobody mentions whether she does talk or not talk. I think it's always implied that somehow she's normal until the moment of the revelation of the feet or that the moment of somebody going missing. So my assumption is that she's able to talk, but I don't, I've never heard it one way or another. What have you heard? No, I don't ever recall anybody saying that she spoke just that, you know, just the general, like she's very attractive and, you know, uh, drew men to her in, in, I guess, in very subtle ways. Like nobody ever said anything about talking to dear woman. So, well, I, I asked that just because that came up during the series or during that episode. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember one story in which somebody mentioned that there was like a increasing distance. And that's somehow there was an interaction where they couldn't uh, vocalize. You know, they were standing next to this woman and they're like enjoying whatever's going on, probably like a dance or something. And they like turn to somebody and then they go back and the woman is farther away. And there's sort of like these moments of like engaging with whatever's going on in front of them. And then every time they turn back, they notice that the woman's farther away and they ask for her to get closer, but somehow it compels them that she's not answering to go where she is and away from the safety of the crowd. Hmm. And in that, I always interpret that as like, she's not saying anything. So they're like, people are enticed to get closer to her. Um, but nobody ever, when they, when I've heard it told that way, nobody ever said that she's not speaking. They just more emphasize the fact that she's distant and maybe quiet, I guess. I don't know. Well, yeah, in yeah, the... Yeah. In the IMDb trivia, it says that Max Landis had given his dad a book on ethnocryptology mm -hmm. and had him choose between something and something and John picked Dear Woman. And so I think that's pretty obvious just because it's very much an appropriated version of the of the story of native people you're nodding Noetta. what do you mean mm -hmm. well just i'm just thinking about like her appearance you know she's wearing buckskin dress and turquoise jewelry and um even the art in the in the intro of the of the show mm -hmm. it's it's a very intertribal version i guess you could say you know they mm -hmm. took everything that they knew of native people and they put it in this series so that that's why i'm nodding my head i'm like yep <laughs> Well, and I, I really wanted Janet Schmidi to walk through and be like, this is from the Southwest. This is from Michael's on sale. <laughs> her at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very, very um, pick what you like most about Native, what you think is beautiful about Native culture. Put it on her, put it on the 
art, take the, the scariest thing you've heard about Dear Woman, put it on, you know, put it in the script, you know, it, it's just bits and pieces that just to make a story, you know, uh, which I think is, you know, really reminiscent of what Hollywood has been doing with Native stories for so many years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but yeah, it's very intertribal. <laughs> Pan Indian, that's a Pan Indian, yes, thank you. Pan Indian, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard it's to tell. Like, the, yeah, and it's like just, it is a mixture of just everything from like the, the outer wardrobe seems like it's more like Northeastern and then she takes it off and then there's that turquoise necklace and then just like the color pattern of the clothing, what it is on her. It's, it feels like it's Southwestern. Uh, and but it, it's also sort of generic. It feels like they did just enough work of like looking through a catalog. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, you know, after we watched it, I think somebody made the joke of, you know, they had gone to the local Halloween store and picked up whatever was on the shelf, worn it for the weekend shoot, and then returned it the next day. You know, the next Monday. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely feels, yeah, there's no specificity there. Um, and it's also vague, just like in general, it's vague about where the location is in the episode. Um, yeah, I mean, was it Seattle? Is it, I mean, it looks like Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah, it was kind of all over the place. It they were, they were in the country and they yeah. were in the city. <laughs> yeah, there's like the sequences downtown. Yeah. It seems like the police office is super busy, like it's a like a city. And then when they pull up to the crime scene, which has got to be in their jurisdiction, it's like very rural and like almost like on a mountainscape. Um, and then the the chase sequence downtown again. Um, so somehow like Dear Woman is like able to walk through these different spaces. I guess I understand the fact that they need like these this these trees or something where deer would naturally live. We need a tree. <laughs> we, need, we need trees. We need evergreen. Uh, but I think the fact that they can't or decide not to locate it does them a great disservice about like what tribe is related to what is going on in the narrative. I don't even know if there are deer woman stories in this part of the united states yeah there may not be with the salish or whatever mm -hmm. so you know i don't I mean, it so there's so many problems <laughs> right so i in case you can't tell we're not big fans so <laughs> the whole thing opens with a guy oh they're in a bar and they're playing pool and a guy needs to use the bathroom well the bathroom's broken so you have to go outside so he goes outside and he was there some kind of rattling in this i think there's like a noise yeah you know, like something's going on outside of the morgan's tavern and grill yeah a rattling and, near the the trucks that are sitting outside of this rest stop and the what is he does he does the oh the door falls off he goes to open the door and it falls off mm -hmm. and that's when we find out that something horrible has happened in the cab of the truck of the semi which starts the whole story off and we meet our oh what would you call him our grizzled what would you call him matt carried he's definitely kind of disgruntled 
and but also like displaced he feels it seems like he's not present and he's and, not and, and and they've like relegated him to this desk job or and it it looks like he's handling animal attacks yeah well yeah he he makes complaints about having to get like the weird cases the weird he gets cases. the weird cases yeah and then animal attacks is one of them and one yeah. of the weird cases is this these neighbors that sit down in front of him and one has a barking dog and the other one is complaining about this dog that attacked it's their pet and the pet turns out to be a dead monkey mm-hmm yeah yeah and yeah then he has an epiphany about the the crime scene the deer the deer crime scene (laughs) that it was an animal attack oh well so they get called out to this tavern and (laughs) they have to get you know he shows up and everybody's like what are you doing here and they start making jokes making fun of him and of course we're all wondering what has he done to be on the outs with all of his cop buddies and why is he being ostracized by this community but then they go in and they look into the cab of the truck and they find this lump of meat Mm -hmm. basically and then they and he pulls up like a like a a jaw there's like a jawline that's that's right Mm -hmm. severed from the body you can definitely see the teeth um i'm just bringing it up because it seems like the the special effects are probably with like one of the strengths of the episode even though they're scant um <laughs> it like i was really affected by that lump of uh meat human like body yeah. parts but the jaw specifically like really impressed me like seeing the teeth and the well, like the ripped off flesh line um and yeah. just seeing the the muscle still on that jaw. I, I feel like I've never seen something in that way. So I feel like that was effective, but. Yeah, and that was brought to us by Greg Nicotero, who is the um, zombie, I guess, designer for The Walking Dead. And he actually worked closely with George Romero mm-hmm. on craft. So he, he it, there's a reason that that was really good because he was really, he's really good at that. Yeah, so there is one of the masters in plural, I guess, of horror. Uh, that's where it does work. There's one. <laughs> well, no, wait a minute. What about that Paul Bunyan deer? <laughs> the, deer, wait, what? The flannel, the flannel deer. The flannel <laughs> deer, yeah. Deer. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Okay, so Let's... the cop has this, like, vision of what actually happened <laughs> and how how a guy was turned inside out, basically, and there's like that guy. It's, it's obviously somebody dressed in a deer costume. <laughs> it's a girl to the truck. And then, well, there's one scenario where she beats him with a deer leg. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's what reminded me of Landis in American Werewolf in London. Because there's like that one moment where the protagonist in that movie who's turning into a werewolf as he's like getting used to being a werewolf, he's like running after deer and then he like right. takes a big bite and there's like a sequence of him like ravishing this deer leg. Um, <laughs> it's, it, I guess it was impressive at the time. It's like, oh, you know, overly saturated red blood and, um, but the deer in the deer leg looks, it looks relatively believable. Um, 
that that I thought was an interesting parallel between these two these sort of like stories about uh, these semi-human semi-animal so we, we have one master of horror and one interesting detail so far <laughs> interesting detail <laughs> <laughs> and so then we flash to a local hotel where a guy is talking to his wife he's obviously on a business trip talking to his wife hangs up and this gorgeous woman walks in and sits down next to him and the description that somebody gives a description of her she's indian but american indian her cheeks have been chiseled like somebody took the time and really knew what they were doing Um, yeah when they made her they really knew what they she had sharp features yeah sharp features like she so was perfectly all... carved by somebody who really took time to make her. <laughs> and that's when we meet our Brazilian actress, uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Moura. Moura. <laughs> we all found it at the same time. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so we meet her and yes, she's very attractive. But then they go up she talk i guess she doesn't talk to him and he's like hey i'm gonna buy you a drink and then they go upstairs and i think we all know what happens next she attacks him although well we don't ever see that do we we don't see the attack but we definitely see a lot of gratuitous frontal nudity oh well yeah Right. Because it's like showtime. I, you know, I'm just like, if anybody wants to watch this episode, they just be aware that it's like going to be, you know, uh, gratuitous. It feels like it's, I guess it's contextualized in a way where it seems like this guy's, you know, taking to her, her to his private hotel room. And uh, I guess narratively, it makes some sense um, to some degree. It's so loose. Well, it's very much the male gaze. Yeah, definitely yeah. like like the cut lingers and she's like blocked, so she like stands and like hovers before moving toward him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely geared toward male showtime viewers. Definitely. And so that is probably something you should keep in mind if you're gonna watch it with little ones. Maybe not. And probably why would you want to waste 30 minutes of your time? <laughs> I think you mean I think you mean fifty-seven minutes. Fifty-seven minutes. No one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think halfway through, I was like, "How much longer is this going to last?" So then, what? How did we get downtown? So she goes well, into I mean, a pawn shop. There is a there is a pawn shop sequence. Absolutely. Yeah. And we still don't know why she went in there. She's killed the the shop. I don't know if he's the owner or clerk, the shop clerk. She kills him and they find his body on the roof. Well, they find oh, yeah, the yeah. arm in the ceiling. Yeah. They can't find the body. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Until our yeah. hero shows up and looks up and goes, Oh, look, hey, I found your arm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his partner. That that shop though has a couple interesting circumstances of just like composition, though, right? She's like She's there in the shop and somehow in this pawn shop, there are fresh flowers and she's like smelling them. Oh, cause she was right? hungry. Cause she was hungry, I guess, you know, that's <laughs> um, hungry after a kill. Um, but then there's like that one shot where it, 
frames her so that she's like in front of these flowers and then there's like a deer head in the background and like the oh the horns are coming the horns are coming out of the back of her head and then there's like a a miller genuine draft sign that has like a mountain escape so at least they're kind of creative there i guess he had lots of gold really cheap gold chains on that's yeah. what i remember my takeaway from that scene yes so um, the detectives all show up and at some point some when we were watching it somebody said that maybe they're in jersey maybe they're in new york these cops for all that they're in the pacific northwest they're in these like good fellas suits yeah the suits and the attitude the sort of like digging into each other they're like also like almost fighting over the crime scene. Yeah. What <laughs> like, are you doing like, here? Like it's a big case. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like poking fun at each other. Like that one officer's like making a joke. The fact that uh, our lead uh, Faraday is like on a first name basis with his partner. And it just felt like it was like, yeah, New Jersey's cop talk or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, the interpret hero goes up on the roof where he discovers the hoof prints and the gate yeah yeah, they're hoof prints and blood or something but he also notices the stride how far apart they are right how Mm -hmm. far apart they are which doesn't make any sense really (laughs) because we've we've seen her and we've seen what she's wearing and I, I, I guess maybe because she's a deer and she's, we assume that maybe she's leaping off screen that they're so <laughs> wide. But that I, 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 can't, I still can't figure out like why they're so widespread. And and what poor PA had to do that? Make sure you <laughs> erase your footprints between each of these. <laughs> so then we get to the big action scene of the whole movie. That turns out to be a nothing burger because he's walking through an alleyway following these hoof prints and he hears somebody behind him and they're walking and we're walking and it's just a close up on his face the whole time. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, yes. And you know what? I just this week watched the original cat people, the RKO RKO movie from 1947. Ooh great film if you haven't seen it you gotta watch it. it's a very amazing sequence that this film seems to take from in this sequence of like this walking down uh like this urban landscape and in that film you know like there's this idea that a woman turns into a cat and she's walking after this woman that she believes is after the man that she's attracted to and this scenario plays out almost like identical in shot composition and definitely in, in the leading sound of like this, these footsteps. Only in that movie, it's it's two women that are in high heels on cement. And which would make more sense. I mean, which the would noise, make the, the sound. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, the sound would make more sense. And, and, and then the whole element of that particular scenario is the fact that you you hear woman one the victim walking and then you hear woman two the perpetrator walking fast oh right and then you go back to woman one and it's slow and you go back to woman two and it's fast 
Then you go back to woman one, and then we're expecting to hear it again, but like there's no more walking of the fast perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes some sense because a cat has very soft paws, oh, right? It might also be like leaping up somewhere. So we don't hear heels anymore. But in this scenario, it doesn't make any sense because every time we see the deer woman and she does have legs, like human legs, she's wearing shoes. And then when she turns into a deer, she's going to have hooves and both are going to make sounds. Right. Um, There is this link that a woman turns into an animal and just then the history of John Landis, he has a, a tendency to replicate things that he likes from like 1930s and 40s cinema. So he's doing that here as an maybe homage. He should have re, yeah, maybe should have re, rethought that one. Yeah, somebody should have rethought it because it is definitely not working. Um, uh, and even not when the guy the jumps out and mm-hmm. like tries to mug him, uh, you know, even that was anticlimactic. I, I mean, I don't remember jumping until he he grabbed the knife from the mugger and then stabbed him in the arm Mm -hmm. and then told him just to walk to the hospital. I was like, what? (laughs) What is this? What? (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, Angela, you, you jump scare pretty easily. (laughs) And I do. Even my co-workers like just walk up behind me and go hey and it makes me jump <laughs> but at least you don't stab them and tell them to go to the hospital <laughs> <laughs> this rogue cop all of a sudden you know he's stabbing perpetrators and then how at some point we go back to the police station yeah where that's we, the moment where we, we meet do. okay where we meet <laughs> the chief with, the chief who's you know the angry african-american yeah Yeah. who's yelling at everybody there's that trope i was surprised that was still a thing in 2005 um i thought that kind of went away i i don't know that that threw me off a little bit like it should be post lethal weapon yeah yeah i thought that ended when they were parodying that and I, i think what Last action hero. Um, or or loaded weapon one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's continued. And they were doing it, I guess, with a straight face in this. Like, I don't know. Or maybe it was parody, meant to be parody. Um, I didn't I didn't see that. Um, I don't know. I, it doesn't seem like it's a funny sequence because it's like the one scene where. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the protagonist is able to kind of make his case and everybody has to take it seriously. He's finally figured out that this is a deer killer um, and that the pounding of the feet is the result of the deaths. And his, and his uh, the, the head police chief is like believing him. And then he's like telling the other cops to not make fun of him. So it seems like it's not meant to be funny or it's not meant to be parody or satire. So it it is a problem that that's like a trope that they're relying on for a serious scene. Yeah. Um, I guess. But also, I mean, the the chief is also pretty calm in listening to this officer's outlandish statement. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Well, and we Probably still don't should... know. I mean, the our protagonists still don't understand the dear woman story. So they're still right. operating in the dark at this point. Mm-hmm. And 
okay, now I can't remember. How did we end up at the Indian Casino? Well, that's that's where he and his partner, um, Faraday's partner, the the cop that's always in the cop outfit. Well, Faraday's like in the detective yeah, outfit. His cop US friend thing. is going to the casino to like, I don't know, like let off some steam or something. Yeah, they go to have a drink or something. Yeah. So, so then they go direct not to the casino. part of the inv investigation, not at all. Oh, no, no. I don't it comes think so. out of, It comes out of nowhere. <laughs> I need a drink. Yeah. Basically. That's good. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> Which at which point I think all of us were like ready to tap out <laughs> <laughs> because when they roll up on the casino and it's just it's it's bad it's bad. I, I did say when they were at the casino, I'm going to be really disappointed if there's not carnage, a la <laughs> American Werewolf in London, and I was let down. <laughs> it just I think that would have saved it. The, the car the carnage that were being critical of, of John, or that rightly critical of John Landis for that that just didn't happen um and yeah they just kind of fizzled fizzled off out of into whatever happened the chase in the the highway or the street or or whatever yeah that yeah that would have been that would have been a much better episode yeah you yeah. followed them to the indie casino and they just finished them all off that would have yeah. been great that would have been great yeah yes. what what great scenario to have like all of these people in this contained environment just like what a disaster movie mm -hmm. these people like trampling each other <laughs> like an old woman still trying to like put money in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be great so of course they're at the bar and here comes not our mystic old indian but our mystic young casino manager who happens to overhear the conversation they're having with braids. across the bar. Yeah, with braids, yeah. yeah. Long braids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bolo tie. <laughs> Never he mind the nondescript over. nature of the tribe again. <laughs> so he wanders over and he's like, hey, I hear you talking about dear woman. Let me drop my knowledge on you. And they're like, what? <laughs> Those are pretty accurate re recreations of their performance. That's 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 almost pretty spot on. It's probably better than what they did. <laughs> uh, uh. Well, of course, their only question is, how do you catch her? You don't. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. this sense of mysticism, I guess, that um just kind of goes over their head it's like you know first of all they're like oh is that real oh how do you catch them you don't it's silly she's a spirit you know <laughs> <laughs> no that that i will say is an interesting lesson that we're seeing these non-natives learn about the idea that the story it does not conceive of dear woman as like a monster that's caught or that there's like, you know, like a silver bullet that ends them or that there's a stake in the heart. There's no like rules. Mm -hmm. And that lesson, just a general lesson that like this native story is just is does not end the same way that most conventional non-native stories do. I think that was an interesting and appropriate aspect of this 
lesson, I guess, that the the protagonist has. Um, and it plays out that way. I mean, right. way. <laughs> so our our, <laughs> our protagonist decides to go investigate, and then our what is it? Our uniform cop decides to put on soft clothes and go back and party some more. <laughs> yeah he takes off his yeah police clothes he puts on that leather jacket and he's rolling dice and the dear woman is standing there next to him right. oh that's right that's right mm-hmm. he gets Which her I, probably I mean, like blowing the dice you know like that whole thing and and what so we were talking about what were i mean the other seven deadly sins of course were i guess cheating on your wife and having sex but the uniform cop he was i mean he was gambling was that his or was there no mortal sin involved in this he was she just was letting just... off some steam mm-hmm. i mean there were so many men in that casino who were doing the same thing that yeah. he picked and she picked him so maybe she doesn't discriminate either <laughs> <laughs> i guess i mean because we had talked about her being a punisher of bad men but this doesn't lean into that. It just she picked a guy who's winning at craps. And so mm-hmm. somehow they go back to his apartment. They do. I mean, she doesn't have an apartment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they go back to his apartment. And then and our then... our in our intrepid hero calls him at which point we're all yelling at the screen look at her feet mm-hmm. yes <laughs> no but it was like the, look at her feet yeah <laughs> that is a moment where the the horror genre does work where we were like yelling at, at him to look at her feet we all knew and he <laughs> wasn't doing it look and it was building up and building up <laughs> and sure enough she goes on the attack while she while he's on the phone with his partner, right? Mm-hmm. He kind of yeah. realizes at the last minute, um, I think. Um, but, but he yeah, turns yeah, into a there. pulp, yeah. Because mm-hmm. we lose him, don't we? Mm-hmm. She finishes yes. him off because officer down, wasn't there an he's officer the last down? victim? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we know of. That we know of. He's the last victim in the episode, and that's you know. Uh, also related to the protagonist's story that he lost his own partner in a previous scenario right so this is like replaying his own personal traumatic backstory and probably why he's like isolated himself from all these other cops and why he's willing to take the weird stories or weird cases so that he can work alone probably because he killed his partner he had a through and through a junkie and shot yeah when does that come up does that come up at the bar at the casino it's at the casino yeah don't they keep showing pictures of his wife or he has a picture of his wife on the am i making this up uh, they, yeah, yeah that's that's the first thing we see yeah yeah, yeah. it's like a photo of a smiling wife because mm-hmm. we thought she was dead we at first i thought he had killed his wife or mm-hmm. like somebody had killed her his wife while he was investigating crime or something like that but no she left him because he was it's almost like, yeah it's almost like one draft of the of the script was about the fact that he lost a wife 
And then I bet there was like another draft where like, no, maybe he should be like have an issue with a partner because the partner dies. They never bring back the wife. Oh no. Yeah. Like that's completely unresolved. Um, So our favorite special effect was her coming out of the apartment building that looked like a bank and jumping. (laughs) Jumping like a deer. She you know, was, yeah, like, dozens of feet up in the air. It's million dollar man <laughs> style. Yeah. <laughs> leaping upward. One actor leaping upward into the sky and landing on probably like a landing pad. And then the actress we've seen and then pop up at the front up. of the frame. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That was the best practical effect ever. Wing. Yeah, it's like a master of horror knew how to do it. Uh. <laughs> so then he's in his cop car. He's chasing her through the woods. And then don't all he of her runs- relatives surrender? What's that? He runs into the forest, though. He, he smashes into a tree because she's standing there. And then oh. all the show, then the relatives show up. So, so he pins uh, her to the tree, but she's fine. And then. Yeah, yeah. There's a moment where he thinks he's he's got her though. Yeah. Like, like the car is like in her and she's sort of like maybe down. Yeah. yeah. But Dude, there is up. Yeah. There is a moment where she kicks the car though. Oh yeah. You yeah. Remember that? Yeah. She has like this tremendous strength. She kicks the car. Oh. And, like he like chases her. She's in the middle of the street, like running. Um, you know, like this, doing this sort of like <laughs> the Terminator <laughs> run. <laughs> terminator run and then he <laughs> pulls the car behind her and then she he gets out and she kicks the car showing her tremendous strength yeah yeah and then he gets back into the car and then chases her again and then that's where he like rams into her against a tree yeah yeah and then she gets away and then i guess the car's still drivable because then he's or but then he's surrounded by the relatives and then of course they don't show him shooting the deer we only hear him shooting at the deer all of a sudden i'm pulling a blank as to how the whole thing ends yeah me too i don't know why i think he just yeah oh no no go ahead i think it just ends in fact i know it just ends (laughs) in just a, a shot of him waiting like at the side of the vehicle she gets away he's there in the dark with this car that's rammed into a tree and the other officers are coming to him and that's it yeah and that's pretty much it i think that's what we said that's it that's it (laughs) and then how do they know where to meet him like that was (laughs) confusing to me yeah how do they yeah he didn't call for them he's just randomly driving in the woods in the woods um yeah. Huh. Huh. Yeah. That and we definitely see we definitely see her run. We definitely see her run. And her run does not match the like the the prints that he sees on the roof. No. So like, there's well, no. like questions for me about like how is oh, she man. running? Yeah. <laughs> Lots of uh inconsistencies or strange. Plot. I think at the at the end of the whole thing, it was like somebody wrote it in during the week, and they decided to shoot it over the weekend, and they spent Friday night through Sunday night shooting it like a twenty four or forty eight hour film race. 
then they were done. But somebody came but somebody came in halfway through and they're like, wait, 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 wait. It's about his cop partner. <laughs> it's not about the wife. Oh. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Oh, well. Did you shoot very much? Well, almost the whole thing. I will say that I um <clears throat> I was mentioning this earlier to Angelo before we started, but I actually appreciate the the performance of the cop. Brian so, Benben? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I feel like he, he's disgruntled to some degree and it's all obligatory. But when he goes through the process of trying to solve the crime, I think he takes it seriously as a character. And I think the actor also takes that character seriously. So um, I believe that this character actually is willing to pursue the thought process that's presented to him and really take the, the story of this dear woman seriously, even if maybe the screenwriter and the director do not. But the character gives me a sense of like the fact that dear woman is um, a danger. Um, and uh, I think that's just um, something that might get overlooked by the fact that everything else is sort of like poorly put together. I really think that the actor is doing a really good job of making me believe that he's like a, a cop who's doing his best to resolve an issue that is beyond his capabilities or comprehension. And um, this really is, I mean, it's pretty much a procedural. This is something we also mentioned, which we, after we watched it, it's less a horror film to me than it is like a, a cop episode, which I guess makes some sense for like the format of a TV duration. Um and the fact that we don't have a character that speaks um, and he's got to piece together these circumstances. And it really kind of plays out like an X-Files episode to me. And um, part of that is also the fact that it's a cop who is like believing in this phenomena and like giving it the serious weight that, you know, Mulder would, um, which makes me take it seriously in real life. But uh, also, there's like these you you completely went by some what some of the best scenes in I the know, show, yeah. <laughs> which which are the autopsy scenes. Oh yeah, <laughs> where he and the character named Dana, just like Dana Scully, always doing the autopsies in the X Files episodes, they have these serious conversations about like what's going on with the phenomena, and it feels like he found one person who is willing to take the questions seriously and not poke jokes at at their expense um and i feel like the if there's any anything worth watching it's probably those scenes because i really feel like there's a chemistry between the two characters they're taking the phenomena seriously even the other character who's the autopsy person dana i feel like she's a little bit like him the fact that she's like taking the strange job that nobody else wants to right and I feel like those things are very clear, clearly figured out in terms of like me believing and actually enjoying those scenes. And um, it's it's sad that there's only, I think, two of those scenes. Um, I wish we had well, one more. And she's the one least. that found the deer fur. Right. She finds a deer fur. And then she also recognizes that the, the penis has been broken or severed or whatever right? whatever and there's that that joke yeah. in the in the trucker in the trucker yeah. murder scene yeah um 
Yeah, so she indicates that there's this sexuality is part of the sequence of events in the murder cases. Yeah. Anyway, I just, just wanted to say, you know, I, I appreciate those particular scenes and I feel like because there's no real indigenous content, they're working with <laughs> they're working because these directors probably understand the thought process. And uh, you know, those things are that that's where it's working. Um, but as soon as we like shift back into a culture that they're foreign to, it's like problems you know red flag red flag that doesn't make any sense that's racist <laughs> well and um, max max landis you know has been in some hot water more recently during the me too movement and being accused of what was he accused of emotion sexual and emotional abuse by eight mm -hmm. women oh my goodness and this was in 2019 and so he, I don't, I mean, just as a indigenous woman watching this, and I don't know what, how you feel, felt about it, Noetta, but, you know, I, I could see that his disregard for women in general and having absolutely no understanding of indigenous women played into this script because it was, I'll have to think about how to say that, articulate what I'm feeling, but i was just saying it was just really gratuitous you know how the women were portrayed in this, this episode and uh you know I'm, like yeah okay dear woman was supposed to be this really hot chick that all guys wanted you know but it was almost too much you know like and then, and then the reenactments of of you know what their idea what his idea the cop's idea of a beautiful woman was supposed to be had, had no regard for this being like a native person of course he didn't know that at the time that it was a native woman all he, well, no, he did. He did know it, but his idea of a native woman and his visions was just this blonde chick, you know. So there was no regard for the culture at all in that too. So, and he ran through a bunch of, like, Marianne, because one was in gingham with the, the pigtails and yeah, oh yeah, very, yeah, she had different costumes and for yeah, each, very, oh yeah, very very stereotypical of men who think that they are being seduced yeah the fantasy yeah yeah those little scenarios were played very much into some misogynistic tendencies i think yeah and yeah and that in almost every scenario with a woman is a fantasy like what you're talking you are all just yeah. like the scenarios of a man's mind and then when we do encounter women in the real world outside of his mind they are still this fantastical dear woman um and also she's got no voice maybe it's motivated by the fact that she's a deer you know but like that's a that's a weird scenario <laughs> to not give this woman who has a lot of agency in the episode to not have any vocalization even deers make noises um but it's it's weird that on one hand she understands english language to be nodding yes to like the drink and to like you know going to the room uh, but then like not having to vocalize anything like that's just a, a very strange way to depict a woman that could probably do a lot of things although um, it's like the perfect scenario for a lot of guys that women mm -hmm. that don't talk back yeah 
women that don't vocalize. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, the women are the backgrounded and not vocalizing, or they are uh, not vocalizing at all. I guess the one thing I I keep forgetting that Dana, the autopsist, yeah. <laughs> is is maybe the one character that defies all this in the scenario, because um, I feel like she is, she's given a lot of abilities to think through the crime that he can't well yes and no but she's still also the nerdy hot girl with the pink hair the, right. and the piercings right it's very different a different i guess fantasy yeah right yeah no, that's, that's true and it's okay for her to talk about all of the morbid stuff because that plays into her stereotype Sure. Right. Isn't she, isn't she eating a sandwich or when, eating a all sandwich. This, when this is going on? So right, yeah. 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 So yeah, it's kind of they're all kind of hot girls. Yeah, she is the only one that talks, isn't she? Except except for the lady I think that the owns waitress the dog. Yeah, the woman who owns the dog, and I think the waitress that offers them drinks or whatever at the at the casino. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about her. <laughs> the party gal waitress yes (laughs) but there's like not even any scene where he's like thinking about his wife and she's talking she's also like a muted woman in this photograph Um, yeah and there's no female detectives or yeah there's no female detectives or you know uniform police women that at least speak or truckers you know, like there could very easily have been a female trucker. You know, like large. Were there Marge. women in that first scene? Were there women? Large Marge. Was were there any women in the first scene at the at the, at pool? the bar? I um, don't think so. But well, there is there is like the only representation of a woman that I remember is on the side of the door of the truck. <laughs> Right. Oh, <laughs> right with the whole um yeah that reclining chick that people put on their mud flaps right yeah that's like the only female that's in the bar sequence in the beginning yep everybody seems to be men inside the bar that's drinking yeah, so. playing so max yeah. what has happened to his career do we know that's a good question i don't know let's let's um Looks like not a whole lot. It's a short film. Since 2019. The Death of Batman. Is that like a... Uh, something he directed. No, since... The Disposition of Barry Allen is something he directed also from... Well, he's writing a lot. I mean... 2022. Yeah. Uh, He did write that Shadow in the Cloud film. I don't know if you guys saw this, but this is sort of like a version of the Gremlin at 20,000 feet story but shadow on the cloud is from 2020 and it's okay. um, yeah female world war ii pilot traveling with top secret documents on a b-17 flying fortress encounters an evil presence aboard and um hmm. oh chloe Moritz. Starring, yeah chloe grace moretz yeah and she's like fighting a gremlin and in that scenario the gremlin is actually pretty cool like the effects of the gremlin and the rhythm and timing of like the suspense is really engaging um, i feel like that's the thing that i've seen that he's been involved in recently hmm. but yeah he's got like a lot of things that seem to be 
up and coming, including an American Werewolf in London remake. Yeah, I guess they're rebooting. Yeah, which is John's name was attached to that too. Right, and he is he is not only writing it, but I think it's, he's slated to direct it. And and this the the log line of it is as she travels through the UK with her boyfriend. Alex is bitten by a werewolf in this remake of the 1981 classic. Hmm. So we're going to gender flip it. Gender flip. But it's still, you know, like playing into some conventions, I guess. Robert Kirkman is a um, producer on that. And he's also a writer on the Pepe Le Pew film for Warner Brothers. I'm what, just they're going like, to do a live action Pepe Le Pew? <laughs> but I think that's interesting. Considering that's a problem. That, that, that's a double <laughs> that's a problem, problem, right? That's a huge problem. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Like, what can oh. the, what, where can the narrative go? Oh, I didn't realize he also wrote that very large Netflix film, Bright. Oh, the Will, the Will Smith? Uh... Yeah, the Will Smith, David Ayer movie about, like, the, the detectives that have to resolve a problem of like missing a missing wand or magical object in this world where orcs and humans are both they like coexist and his will smith's character has a partner that is an orc i think that that actually came out right when the allegations were happening against him and that was people were saying you shouldn't release that movie this is this is wrong um Mm -hmm. i Mm -hmm. kind of remember that and that was a big deal like that, I guess, mm-hmm. at the time was one of the biggest releases for Netflix and had mm-hmm. the most views and the most views that were of the longest duration. And I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a sequel. I think somebody said that at one point. Yeah, I think I've heard that. Yeah. Our, it seems like our conclusions are pretty much well, in I, disfavor I, of this episode. I, yeah. I, I think probably, you know, ignoring all of, of the irresponsibility on the filmmakers um i feel like the biggest sin they create is they don't make this thing scary for masters of horror um if you look at american world in london that's a really scary movie um all up and down not just the werewolf stuff there's scary stuff in that movie and it just happens to be really funny and just at times just they're trying too hard to push this humor that he he as his career goes on with like coming to America and spies like us, I'm kind of going on a border, but um, he, he, his comedy, Oh, three amigos, his comedy got really broad and you can kind of see hints of that in this. And it's just, he's trying too hard, I think to be funny instead of being scary. And I think he, he's not the only master of horror that was guilty of that. I think there's other episodes that were, that tried to push you like either be it through camp or through, um, just kind of slapstick humor it just they were injecting too much humor into it without being scary um um, yeah that's kind of kind of my problem with it yeah american werewolf does have a lot of scary imagery in it like i whenever i see it i'm very affected by the his friend um that has been mauled to death and then he, we see him disintegrate throughout the mm-hmm. film, and that's really disturbing. And then the dream or nightmare sequences where there's werewolves that are in like SS uniforms, and they come in, and they like, um, 
eliminate everybody with like automatic weapons. It's like really with the Muppets playing in the background. With the Muppets playing in the yeah, background. Yeah, that's that's right. just yeah. really kind of that's disturbing. It's upsetting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's nothing like that. And and I don't know, not not that that needed this, but it just uh, just kind of lame attempts at humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and then even like the the character, uh, David, I think, right? And even werewolf? the protect in werewolf, even the protagonist has like these really horrific psychological issues. He's not quite certain about like what's going on with him. He can't get a grasp of where he is in relation to like the 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 loss of control over his body. And then this guilt that he's faced with about the murder of his friend. There's a lot of horrific ideas that are, are like pretty mature in mm-hmm. their exploration of a horror. It's not just mm-hmm. like jump scares and not just blood and violence. I feel like they're re- he's really working through a lot of interesting questions about like people's guilt, um, even when they feel that they have no control over their their abilities, I guess. Um but uh, yeah, none of that, none of that's in this episode. But it, there's the potential for it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. The the cop character would have really benefited from having that that turmoil that we that we could see or or, or be aware of, um, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. The fact that he's like story wise, just you know, haunted by this moment of his past. It feels like that it's kind of strange to me that we don't see it. I don't know if I don't know if that's the moral ethical thing to do, but for us to understand and for an exploration of horror, that's like a it seems like a very common thing where we see the traumatic moment of a partner's death. Even just like in a regular procedural, we'll see that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we we don't see it in this is really strange. And that's the critical crux of like his malaise. It's missed opportunity of a master. A master. A master. Um, and then, I mean, just the the moments of of dear woman interacting with her victims. It's all off screen, um, which just screams to me like either budgetary limitations or like no imagination. It's probably a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. Weren't those really brightly lit? They're br- pretty brightly lit. I mean, I'm, it was really flat, uh, yeah. <laughs> and like that, all of his stuff—he shoots well, not werewolf, but like all of his com. Obviously, his comedies are shot like that, and he was shooting this like that, which like, you know, the potential to create something really creepy. Again, that's gone. Right, that is gone, yeah. and it does. Yeah. It does seem like. It does, you know, there are very few moments in his career after he becomes quite large, you know, so like American Werewolf in London, Twilight Zone and Into the Night. Um, I feel like in it, maybe a little bit of Innocent Blood, those are like the periods where he's got like photography that's like playing into the genre of stark contrast and mm-hmm. deep shadows. But you're right, like Three Amigos, Spies Like Us. Beverly Hills Cop 3, oh, Blues gosh. Brothers 2000. Which, all, oh my gosh. Yeah, Ugh. they're all pretty flat. It's just like, it looks like a like a sitcom yeah. lighting. <laughs> Even his staging is is very sitcom-y. I don't know about 
I was thinking about Beverly Hills Cop 3 in relation to the first two, and it's just nothing like he's shooting three amigos almost. Yeah, it's um, so like unexpressive and so like not dynamic with the camera. Yeah. But the story of this cop seems like it should be. Like it just the inherent nature of like a an amusement park that has like rides that go fast or there's you know nooks and crannies that they could be exploring it's weird that they that doesn't happen in that film mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying they shot it in one weekend oh, yeah and they had a bunch of interns running things <laughs> it definitely feels like it's a very economic series <laughs> as, as a whole as a whole yeah i, don't I mean know. like just looking at these other episodes it feels like even though some of them are a little bit better than others I feel like I I don't walk away from any of these episodes thinking that they didn't have to work around a, a small budget. Yeah, but you can still be creative with a small budget. Look at Duel. Yeah, you totally can. Yeah, I mean, you, you totally can. But I'm just very aware of it almost every episode. And he is definitely not being... The fact that he's got this history of just like these bloated budgets means to me that like he probably is not the right person to figure out how to make a an effective horror film with no money right well i didn't like it obviously (laughs) (laughs) um it was just so i just felt like that they wanted to develop the the cop and then they kind of pulled back you know i kept feeling like they would want to develop a character and then they would pull it back you know and this is supposed to be a story about deer woman you know the only it took a long time to finally get to him to realize what he was dealing with and even in the whole, you know, skepticism of, of, you know, our stories and our culture, there was none of that from him. He was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's gotta be a deer. It's gotta be a deer woman. You know? Um, the, I don't know. I just feel like that the story, like it obviously had to be written over a week. Angela. I mean, <laughs> so many holes I felt like in the story that weren't developed well, or they weren't, uh, explained well. And, um, kind of just kind of left me scratching my head like what you know a lot of it so um if if taking the time to really truly develop the story I think it could have been a good movie or or episode whatever but I mean it it just also kind of shows the lack of respect for native culture in in development in the development of the lack of development in in the dear woman's story so I, I think if you're going to use something from a different culture, you at least with that respect to elaborate more on what this is and what this phenomena is. So those are just my thoughts. So what's an example of your favorite type scary movie? My favorite type of scary movie? Oh, gosh. Um, you asked me this last time. It was I said The Shining, I said The Omen. I like these ghost stories, these stories that I feel like that could truly happen to people. Uh, you know, like The Conjuring, you know, I know that's based on a true story that, and Poltergeist, you know, those were some of my favorite because they actually scared me because I knew stuff like that could happen. And part of that coming from the native culture and having experiences like that myself, um, I, you know, I grew up believing in, in ghosts. I grew up believing in spirits and obviously I believe in Dear Woman. Uh, so, you know, just knowing that there is a supernatural element out there that we have not a lot of people see and a lot of people don't believe in, but 
our ancestors, my ancestors have seen it. I've seen it, you know, it, it happens. So those are the things that scare me the most when I know it could possibly happen. What about you, Matt? What's your favorite kind of scary movie? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of with Noetta, just if, if, if it's kind of grounded in reality, so to speak, uh, but it could really happen. Um, talked about last time, I, uh, when I was around 10 or 11 years old, my friends and I would watch all these Nightmare on Elm Street sequels and Friday the 13th sequels. And my dad said, those aren't scary movies. You need to watch scary movies. So he rented uh, The Shining for us and we were literally watching it under the covers. Uh, we, we were that scared. Um, but there's some new stuff out that's really good. I mean, one, one of the scariest ones I've seen in probably the last 10 years is It Follows. Um, there is a constant uh, just uh, feeling of dread throughout the movie. And uh, if that can linger after the movie's over, because um, it did with me, that stuck with me. I saw that five times in the theater. Um, I, I, I loved it. Um, and uh, everyone I saw it with was terrified by it. Just uh, you, you never know what was gonna what was gonna happen. Um, there's some good ones out this year too. Um, Watcher, that's uh, that's a really good one. I just watched one last night called Saloom Salome from South Africa. Excellent. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but you should you guys should uh, seek it out. That's that's a good one too. What's it showing um, on? I think you can rent it on Amazon and it's on Shutter and AMC Plus. Yeah, if it, if it sticks with you for whatever reason, if it sticks with you after the movie's over, um, The Ring, The Ring was like that. Um, I ran to my car after I saw the movie um, and it was daylight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just if it has the power to stick with you for whatever reason. Um, that that that's 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 a good that's a good scary movie. Your turn, Sunrise. Well, when you first asked this to me. Uh... <laughs> What I said was dazed and confused. I really totally believe that's a horror film. Uh, it's it's a horrifying idea that we've got these teens in this small Texas town, and all they're doing is talking about the potential and the future. But I really think that they're going to get stuck in that small town, and they are just going to perpetuate this like psychological. Uh, violence that's perpetrated upon them by the older people and that they're not going to make their way out of this town and the last moment where they're like driving on the road there's sort of like this vacant road and it it's not a future that looks like it's hopeful to me you know they're supposed to be driving to Aerosmith and it just looks like it's a it's a drive into hopelessness it looks like they're going nowhere and uh you know like that's a a, a teen horror to me you know, so my answer was subversive and just getting, you know, people to think about like what is horror. But I also uh, gave the example of uh, this great 1960s horror film, black and white, stark photography, a governess governing over two children in this large mansion. Um, you know, it's like uh, you can feel the hollowness of this environment, but also this sort of like dripping you know like this gothic past and somehow she feels that there's a presence there the ch children know but somehow the adults don't know and she's caught between these sort of like weird beliefs do, do, do i am i going crazy because i understand what the children are seeing and i'm seeing things that that you know these specters 
and uh, this loss of reality and you're sort of not sure what's real and what's not in this film and really great photography and a really great performance by Deborah Kerr as the governess. And um, it's really just like disturbing on kind of a classic horror level. I think it often goes overlooked by these other, you know, great classics like The Shining or The Exorcist. Um, but that's a, a really great one that I feel like takes the weight of like ghosts seriously and the idea of the gothic horror. Um, two more recent films that I would suggest if people are interested. Um, there's a really, while we're talking about gothic horror, there's a really great Manhattan gothic horror called The Scary of 61st. And it's basically about these two young women um, that happen to rent an apartment that seems to be... Um, have this strange energy that affects them from within one of them like starts to get these strange kind of sexual cravings and they discover that this is the the apartment building of um a nefarious uh character i feel like i don't want to reveal it i'll do it um i won't do it so like um it's definitely up the alley of male perpetrators that are in the news. So I'll just say that, but I like, you know, like the discovery of it, I think is part of the interesting like shock of this film. It um, it's definitely out to provoke. And part of that provocation is like very resonant because you're like, Oh yeah, that's really horrific. And where the director goes with it and how there's sort of like an element of possession is really kind of super disturbing in a really interesting and a very unique way. And then there's a second film, um, a world cinema film called Atlantics from 2019 by Maddie Diop. And this is um, taking place in the in Dakar. And um, it's pretty much about um, the loss of uh, immigrants that try to leave the continent of Africa for the European continent. And they get lost in the sea. And really what we're looking at is this town of these people and this um, this working construction working community and their dreams about escape. But they're also haunted by the past of these people that they knew that went on this journey to escape um, this through the sea and they've lost their lives. So they're sort of like these moments of like um, characters that sort of like are half like zombie half specter like they're definitely undead and their spirits and they have come back to take um charge against the people that basically put them in a position of like indentured servitude in this construction industry sort of like a crass critique and like these you know like it, it's sort of like a call for uh revolution but really amazing like moods and tones and it's so beautifully photographed and it's got a great score and uh, it, I it just really resonated with me about like somebody who's depicting like these um you know the, the deceased and that they are given some sort of um respect um culturally and then like within the narrative so beautiful film it's great Atlantics what about you Angela well I am a devotee of the Universal Monsters. I like to go old school. So I like Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein, 
Bride of Frankenstein, like I said, is probably one of my favorite movies and has really set the bar for a lot of those kinds of movies. I mean, even so much so that Mel Brooks used it as the basis for his movie. So I think it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like the perfect, I think that I lean into those kinds of stories just because it's mostly talking about the horror of mankind and how cruel humans can be to people that are things that are different. Like I, King Kong breaks my heart. You know, the monster could have had a shot at a, you know, maybe not a decent life, but being a decent creature, just the fact that they're misunderstood and driven away from society is something that gets me. And I, I just like those kinds of movies. Out of all the Universal, is there like one that's like the the top out of all that'd be, those? Yeah, it'd be Bride of Frankenstein for me. Right. Followed closely by Dracula with oh, Bela yeah. Lugosi. Yeah. Yeah, Dracula's great. He's so fabulous in it. He's really good. Accent and the lighting. I mean, I also like like the German cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh yeah, German yeah. expressionism. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, I, it's I spectacular guess, sets in both of those. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess I kind of lean towards the more stark black and white, like stylized look from that time period for mm-hmm. my scary stories. Yeah, be- not rooted in realism at all. Not rooted in realism. <laughs> like The Exorcist. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I read the book. The book is horrible. Oh. Well, the movie is 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 horrifying. Like the not just like the scares that actually happen, but uh, you know, like the the possession and the subsequent like exorcism, but also just like the mm. spinal tap uh, and you know, like the medical procedures that she's got to go through and this violent yeah. noise of the machine. It's like, <clears throat> it's just like, oh, so like difficult to take on top of the fact that like this family's falling apart and her mother doesn't know what's going on with her daughters being possessed. Yeah, the sound yeah. design's really, really scary in that movie. There's People would jump just at certain sounds, not just the machines, but just... And not just the horrifying noises that were coming out of her room, but like just the, the phone ringing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. scary for some yeah. reason. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the phone. Oh ringing. my god. There's also like a scene where there's like rattling. You're not sure what the rattling sound is, and it's just like disturbing because you can't quite process what would make that sound and at that moment. Yeah, very effective sound. That, you know, that makes all the difference. When I watch these modern scary movies, I turn off the sound in order to make it through the scary scenes. Because mm. <laughs> then once I know what's going to happen, I can go back and watch it in real time with the with the sound. <laughs> Are you also a Jaws fan? Because Jaws is sort of like a... Oh my gosh, I love Jaws. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite movies. Love it. Yeah, that's a great film. What about Alien? You like Alien? I had a heart attack watching Alien. Oh my gosh. So much. I mean, talk about tension. Another favorite of mine was uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original. The original, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so fun to watch. Is that a zombie one? Yes. Yes. I love zombies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gee, maybe that's why you cover, what is it, The Walking Dead? 
Yeah. <laughs> are you? It's, are you? It's not so much about zombies anymore. It's about no, people. it's pretty soapy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty much not about. It's about the the walking. Yeah. <laughs> or not even that. It's about like the standing alive. It seems like. <laughs> um, are you into fear at all, or like any of the subsequent sequels? I. I was, but not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's all pretty much the same thing. But I've stuck with the original um, show just because I read the comic book up to a point. Mm -hmm. I kind of liked seeing that play out and everything. And now I'm like so invested in it. It's like, okay, I got to see it to the end. Got to see the end. Yeah. I'm, Which I'm, it won't be the end. I'm either. the same way. Yeah. I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we can say unequivocally that this episode of Masters of Horror, maybe one master, maybe one interesting bit. Not a fan. Across the board. That's a mm -hmm. four nose. Not about the horror. I would say it's a decent procedural. I <laughs> might argue with you on that one. Because <laughs> at one point when they first get to the, what, the first crime scene they don't even have gloves on i mean at some point he pulls them out he, he walks up to the crime. yeah he he walks up to the crime now the way that they choreographed it though <laughs> is that he walks in and he puts his hands up while he's like looking at the like the mass of of, of carcass and i think we're meant to see that he's got no gloves while he's like looking and then they go to a close-up shot of him and as he puts his hand up in frame enough to like be able to snap you know like do that whole like snapping <laughs> of those gloves and so it's like kind of made of a big deal uh, <laughs> that we know that he's putting them on um anyway <laughs> yeah my obsession over the strange details <laughs> are we ready to end this i think we're ready to end this okay Thanks for joining us for our discussion of Dear Woman. And remember, don't just keep it real. Keep it, keep it real. real. Indigenous. <laughs> One of these days we'll get it. <laughs> I never <heard> that. <laughs>